in the ever-deepening opening to the Dharma, there are so many practices that are the that are helpful, but there's one basic ground of development practice that we need to come back to frequently in order to keep our practice going and, and to feel that we have the energy to do it. And for me and many practitioners, that's the practice of patience. <laughs> this is the one Dharma talk that I get the most response from. It doesn't matter when I give it, the beginning, the middle, or the end. Everybody says, it's just the right time. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I notice that I've given it here almost every other year or every two years. I became really interested in this particular uh, virtue because when we were studying the paramis and we were giving a lot of talks on the various paramis, I took up the one on patience a long time ago. I I said, I'll I'll do that one. My mother named me Patience. That's my birth name. Uh, Manindra named me Kamala. And um, so later I found out she probably was psychic. She knew I needed a lot of patience in my life. So... Uh, this particular parami, this parami of patience, uh, piqued my interest a lot because the Buddha said that it is the foremost virtue, it is the supreme virtue of all the virtuous qualities, and at least in the Theravada tradition there are ten virtuous qualities. Just to name a few, the first one is generosity, there's loving kindness that we've been practicing, there's equanimity, there's wisdom, renunciation, um, so just to name a few. But all, uh, of all of those, and patience is one of them, he said that patience is the supreme virtue. And I, uh, somebody told me when I gave this talk at the Forest Refuge in May that Achan Buddhadasa said that uh, patience is the supreme incinerator. I like that because, you know, it's like, Whatever the defilements come up, if you can put them through patience, it just burns them up. So if we can remember that, we might be more interested in bringing patience more into our practice. But it's not a quality or one of the virtues that get as much attention or Dharma talk airtime, actually, (laughs) as the other ones. So for this reason, I wanted to give it a little more nourishment to bring it into wise attention. So maybe it can play out more spontaneously in our lives and especially in our practice. I know that it's given me that gentle, persevering energy of endurance in not just uh, in my practice, but of course in my life, raising children, and getting, just getting through life. Uh, we need that endurance and something that keeps us on the path without kind of constricting all the time and uh, feeling that we just can't go on, which I've had many moments of, but with patience, just getting through that. So it just doesn't help us to remember to come back over and over again to the present moment but it's to maintain that silent inner resolve to keep going no matter what the outer circumstances are, no matter what the inner circumstances are, to keep my my eye on the highest aspiration that I have for my life. Uh, And so if we don't have patience, all we can see is the rock in front of us and complain But when we do have patience, we can see much further than that. And it's really important to do that. To be able to face every seeming obstacle and look at the obstacle and say, this is an opportunity. And it's not really an obstacle. It's an opportunity to see something about myself that maybe I haven't faced uh, so well in the past. To look at those empty echoes of the mind, those habit patterns that come up, 
more and more clearly, especially when we're doing this kind of practice, when we're putting the light of mindfulness on everything that happens, inwardly and outwardly. Um, Oftentimes, when we first come to practice, we need so much more patience because we're seeing so much more clearly how difficult it is uh, in, in the heart, in the mind, to open. To, it's so difficult to just be with things as they are. In our lives, we're, especially in this day and age, we live in this information and electronic age where everything's going so fast that you have to be really careful on the computer that you don't touch that send button before you <laughs> you've reviewed what you've written. I mean, I've regretted that, you know. Oh, and um, I mean, it, it, it happens so fast that we do it with our mouths, you know. It, we press that send button, it just comes out of our mouth right away. We don't even think about it. Everything goes so fast. Uh, we have too much, too many choices, and things are going so fast. That's kind of the predicament we're in, in this day and age. And so um, I like having, we love going and teaching in Italy. Um, for me, it's, it's, I, I love our yogis there, but also it's a place where they go more slowly usually, you know, where they take time to eat and, and they have this whole culture of slowness. So that's been really important to me. So whether it be in my daily life or in my deepest inner journeys, it's just so important to come back to patience all the time. It was particularly highlighted to me in terms of my practice when I took a month uh, for practice this past year between January and February. And um, I've come to appreciate the power of patience in my practice a lot more than I have in the past. I think as I get older, and and even as I practice more, of course, I see that it becomes much, much more important for me to pay attention to patience. Because, you know, as you get older, you think that you don't have that much time left. Now, this year I'll turn 65, and there's more years behind me than there will be ahead, <laughs> you know. That's, that's a surety. And so I get to be, when I'm practicing, kind of attached to some outcome. And I, I want it sooner than later, of course. And so when I went to this last retreat, uh, that was in January, February, a month in between those two months. It was really humbling um, to bring back that power of patience again in a very conscious way. It's such a highly respected altruistic quality in so many spiritual circles that, you know, I do often wonder why it, it isn't talked about as much. Maybe it's because in the West, it's sometimes regarded as a weakness rather than a strength. I mean, we're we're kind of a pushover if we're we're too patient. But I want to read what uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said about this. He said, when it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind and heart. And also, you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, you can develop wisdom. If you lose patience, if your mind flounders by emotions, then you've lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient from a basis of altruism, then you don't have to lose strength. You can even increase your strength. So during that month at at the Forest Refuge, I had for my own personal practice, it took me just a little bit of time. I think I was there less than a week when I realized that I needed to reflect and pause and uh, really look at 
what was going on in my practice, what I was kind of leaning into the future about with attachments to how I wanted it to be. I had to admit to myself that I was really feeling impatient with my practice. I didn't, of course it was only a week and I've, I've gone through so many retreats and I know by heart already the first week there's a lot of sloth and torpor and then there's restlessness and then the attachment to wanting things to be in a certain way comes up. It's subtle, but the subtler it is, in, in some ways it's more difficult. And so uh, I took a look at what was going on and I realized that I had to remind myself over and over again that I needed to be patient. So I made myself a kind of um, mantra. And the mantra went like this. It was really more of an understanding of my practice uh, that helped me to be patient. And it was like this. This unfolding process is happening in its own natural way at its own pace. And, and just gave me what Steve had been talking about, the right view of practice, the right view of how to look at what we're doing in our practice. It has its own natural pace. It's happening in its own unfolding. There are many causes and conditions that we can't control. But what we can do is just put forth that patience moment to moment without uh, pushing. So I remembered back when, uh, when I would practice with Seda Upandita that when I would come in to the, his interview room and th- there would be a way that he wouldn't only just look at uh, or hear what you were saying, but he would look at how you were walking in the room and you could be walking really, really slowly. And maybe from the outside you could look beautiful, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, I would be there hearing the report of the previous person in front of me. And I could see that person, a lot of times it was another nun walking in front of me, just beautiful. And then she would call the person on something that, you know, that person wouldn't realize or would say, wow. You know, later the nun would say, he could really see what was going on in my mind. And I noticed that too for myself, that I could be walking in just, you know, graceful body, not with any tilt in my posture at all, but my mind was going into the future, leaning into the future, tilting ahead, wanting it to be otherwise maybe, just kind of rushing with my practice a bit. And he would say, more often than he would say any other phrase to me, he would say in, in Pali or in English with his little Burmese accent, he would say, patience is a supreme virtue. Just to remind me, not to, you know, I don't need anything more to happen than what is happening in that moment. Because what is happening in that moment is what needs to be paid attention to. So patience, the supreme virtue, this process that we're all going through has its own natural unfolding. It has its lawful unfolding. Manindra would say that everything is unfolding lawfully in its own way, meaning the causes and conditions are happening without any control that we have over it. So if we can just allow it it's a lot easier on us. We could see more clearly what's going on without looking too much into the future. We can see the present moment. Patience is the antidote to striving to attachment to results. And it's something that uh, we need to look at all throughout our life, through our practice life, through our home life. I know in our, in our life here, in our society, in the West, striving is a good quality, but it's not, I mean, we, we strive to do better for our families, to, in our job situation, in our studies, um, 
And sometimes that can get the best of us, and we don't know where the right balance is anymore. But patience really has no aim when you look at it real closely. It just allows us to be with this unfolding present moment. And that's why it's so important to the practice of mindfulness, because mindfulness is the practice that brings us to the present moment in a complete and full way. And so does patience, if we can really bring it into our lives more and more. And from this vantage point of just being with that present moment, I know there's lots we can learn from looking at to what might happen into the future and making our preventative plans for disaster and all of that. But there's so much that can be learned from the present moment and even so much more that um, it's just in, in, in such an intelligent society we live in, and each of us is so intelligent, that we can't see that clearly. It boggles my mind sometimes that I can't really see that as deeply and as truthfully as, as it really is true, that there's so much understanding that can come from just taking the present moment's experience and being with it and really seeing what's coming out of this lawful unfolding inside and outside. So during that time of my practice uh, at the beginning of the year, I made my practice very simple as we try to impart to you here. I just followed a schedule of my own sitting there. It's you, you make your own there's a very few sittings that you're required to attend, uh, but I made my schedule of which ones I was going to attend to, and I did that. And I did the walking where, when I thought it would be balanced for me to do that. I had touchstones along the way of sitting and walking, having the proper nourishment, having the proper rest and fresh air. But all along the way, my, my deepest aspiration was not to get anywhere but to have this gentle, flowing constancy of practice. So, you know, maybe continuity and being continuous was too, um, it put me too much in a box. So I just thought of the word constancy, just being as constant as I can. And I would always remember Munindra's gentle words, you know, it, it was in my practice it was great because I had um, Manindraji, this soft, loving, compassionate, gentle being, and then on the other side was Upandita, very high bar, very strict, precise, and I really both of them helped me have a balance in my practice. So when I would need it, I would remember Manindra. You know, I'd say I can't catch everything. It's it's too hard to be continuous. And he would, he would say very truthfully, as we've said to some of you, you don't have to catch everything. Just catch as much as you can in the present moment. And then you'll still have continuity. You can miss many moments, but you can still kind of carry that golden thread of mindfulness in your hands, in your heart, in your practice, and you won't lose it. So keeping that kind of constancy, and if I fell back, then I would just begin again. And really, beginning again would be like, no problem. I could be lost for a few moments, pick it up again, and if I wasn't worried about being lost, if I wasn't blaming myself, if I was just patient in that very moment, it would pick up and it would be as if no time passed. Just the next moment would be really a very beautiful moment of continuity and constancy in the practice. When, you, when we look at our practice and we look at the concept of time, really, there's no time. It's, it's just the present moment arising and passing away. It's only when we worry that, oh, we've been lost for 10 minutes, and then we think about you know, the concept of 10 minutes, and then we get mad at ourselves. But really, you just pick up the next moment, and boom, you're right there again. It's only when you're impatient with yourself 
and you start blaming and feeling guilty and so that wedges in and it becomes very hard. So through all the times of sleepiness and tiredness in the beginning of the retreat and sometimes restlessness and some bumpiness here and there during the retreat that I had, the, the main theme was that constancy and just that gentle persevering effort that I could have moment to moment. So the practice is unfolding in a lawful, natural way at its own pace. This is what was important to understand, to have that right view of practice. Everything that was happening was perfect. Everything that was coming up was an opportunity to really take a look at in a better way. Instead of being a distraction or an obstruction or an obstacle, you can make everything into an opportunity to look more deeply. I appreciate this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that um, talks about nature because what we're discovering in our practice a lot is the nature, the unfolding nature of everything and its lawful unfolding nature. So the quote from him is, adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. So you can sense that probably have gardens and uh, or you're you're connected with nature if you uh, live anywhere and you you see the spring coming or the um, when there's been a winter and the you know the leaves are folded inward and you see that uh, when I was at this retreat it was a winter time but it was getting warmer on the east coast and so I saw the ferns starting to unfold little bit by little bit Sometimes in the areas where it was warmer, the ferns were unfolding in, in a faster way. And in the colder areas, they were still just closed up a little more. And every walk that I took every day, I would check on the ferns and see how much they had unrolled or unfurled themselves. And it would remind me that this is just the nature of things to unfold and to see I can't really push it. I can't pull open that and that fern and, and say, oh, now, you know, I want it to happen now because it happens in its own time. And that's what's happening to us in our own minds. It's just we can give it the proper nourishment, the right balance, the sunshine and, and water and you know, the fertilizers, all the defilements, really. And just let it be, and then see what grows from all of that. It was interesting um, to learn that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for the monks, the monastics around him, like we do here in retreat. But for a long time, he didn't lay down any rules. His only rule was patience. It's still one of the rules, I hear, but during, uh, there were times when, of course, the, the first bhikkhus, or the first uh, monastics, were very highly developed. So, you know, they didn't break many rules, but still, there was patience. Now, there's 227 rules, because... <laughs> There were so many monks, monastics, nuns who came into the practice where they needed rules to keep everyone feels, feeling safe, to support the inner quietude and all of that, as we do here. But still, uh, the, the most important rule or virtue that the Buddha pointed out all the time was patience, the supreme code of conduct, the supreme virtue. It's so important to just stay with, with the present moment, and patience helps us do that because we can see more fully, we can see more clearly what's going on instead of leaning into our future or attachment to what we think, it, what we think should happen for us. 
here's an often read story um, that makes a point. I actually found this story in the sports section of the Honolulu Advertiser many years ago, about 20 years ago. This is a story. A young boy traveled across Japan to the school of a famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the teacher, the sensei. What do you wish from me? The master asked. I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in the land, he replied. So how long must I study? Uh, Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? Twenty years, replied the master. (laughs) Twenty years? What if I practice day and night with all my effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. How is it that each time I say I will, will work harder, you tell me it'll take longer, the boy asked. The answer is clear. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, said the master, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. We're not fully present then. So we learn that a full and complete presence gives us more clarity, a broader view, uh, a longer range view to find the way, to be able to respond skillfully to what we come across in that moment. So we see all the conditions that are available to us to see. In the early years of practice, during the 70s, I would hear the teachings. And of course, like many of you, or if not all of you, feel a sense of being home when you you hear the teachings, when you heard them for the first time. And even though I didn't fully understand a lot of what I was hearing, and I had a lot of questions. I felt fairly relaxed in in the Dharma. But where I wasn't relaxed was I had this spiritual hunger and this spiritual urgency, which is a good thing to have in a way, but it gets to be kind of like impatience. Um, We call it spiritual greed, Dharma greed. We can see it coming from, I I see it myself, I want all the books, if somebody reads a poem, I want that poem, you know, that kind of dharma greed. Suzuki Roshi says that it is when your practice is rather greedy that you become discouraged with it. So here we've been talking about cause and effect, seeing cause and effect relationship in our practice, uh, being able to see the causes and conditions for what we are, why we are feeling what we're feeling now. Can we look back and see what caused that? So when we're feeling discouraged, usually a cause is wanting something more out of our practice than we're ready to experience, than is lawfully ready to unfold. Because maybe we, we haven't gotten all the pieces yet to see that particular thing, to experience that particular experience. So just understanding that that discouragement has causes and conditions, and it usually goes back to that greed. Even um, greed for the Dharma can cause suffering. I remember going to Manindraji and telling him I felt I would feel discouraged for this and that reason. And when I look back, I could see how it was brought about. You know, there would be some insignificant stray thought come up. Now, you can relate this to your practice, I hope, that would say, I should be making more progress. I'm not making progress. It should be different in my practice. I feel I'm not doing the right thing. Thoughts like that would gather other thoughts and energy of the same kind. And before you know it, there would be a huge overwhelm. And you know, I hear it from students who come to me. And I've been a student, and I still am. And I go and, and say similar things. And when I went to Manindra at that time, long ago, 
I was saying something like, I'm not any good as a yogi. I can't do this practice. And I remember that time that I was simply comparing myself to somebody in the hall who was sitting longer than I was sitting. And I thought I should be sitting longer than I was sitting. I would get up when the 45-minute bell would ring, and this person would sit longer. So comparing was a precursor to judging. Judging was a precursor to criticism. Criticism was a precursor to discouragement. And before I knew it, I was wanting to roll up my mat and go home. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> so Manindra would tell me, oh, this is just yogi mind, you know, just give me some advice. And OK, I'd carry on. Yogi mind, yogi mind, yogi mind. So be careful when yogi mind comes up. This is a great description, definition of yogi mind that Steve came up with. Yogi mind is the magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. When we think it's so overwhelming, you know, but really where it came from, some small little thought that gathered, you know, like what are those things called? We don't have them in Maui. Rolling, huh? Yeah, well, snowballs, snowballs too. We don't have that in Maui too. <laughs> Sometimes we do on Haleakala. So what Manindra pointed out was that I was expecting the practice to unfold differently, but it was unfolding perfectly. And it was just because of impatience that it was that way. He would say in his Indian accent, on account of your impatience, you're feeling this way. On account of your impatience. So much later in practice, there was a, a more refined state. And I just felt like I was in a holding pattern for a long time. I mean, long time means months, you know, just kind of seeing the same thing happen over and over again. And so, I went to Manindra and, and I said, oh, it's a long time, nothing new in practice, just a lot of, there was a lot of balance and calm in the mind and it got kind of boring sometimes. And so, I mean, can you imagine when you're having a lot of defilements and then you <coughs> complain about equanimity? I mean, <laughs> so, but anyway, he said to me, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And just that things just weren't ripe then. And just had to keep practicing and, and seeing things as they are with equanimity. So I remembered some of the advice along the way, Suzuki Roshi's advice about having just a sense of constancy. And one of the things he talked, Suzuki Roshi talked about was just having short moments many times. Just going back to that little mantra, just short moments many times. It just doesn't have to be that you take a big, you know, long look at, hold on something and think that, okay, I want to get from here to the end of, in my walking practice, I would start out saying, from here to the end of the path, perfect mindfulness. It would never happen, you know? <laughs> so I started to think about short moments many times. So this is what I, I still actually do this. I would, in the walking path, if I would do the formal walking, I would look at some little thing on the, on the pathway if I needed to, not all the time. Maybe there'd be a little rock or a little leaf, and I would just say, from here to there, that's all. Nothing more than that. You know, it wouldn't be like the whole path. Just short moments many times. Also, when you're with moment-to-moment -moment experience, with the breath or anything else that comes up. The ripening cannot be rushed. Um, we just, you know, have to bring patience to all of that. I told this story to some of you in a group interview about his Holiness, the Dalai Lama, when he was asked in an interview, have you made progress in your practice? And I always remember this in my own practice, too. And his answer was, uh, if I think back one year, 
uh, cannot see any pro progress. If I think back five years, little, you know how he does this, little. And 10 years, some, some progress. 20 years, yes, I can say. So, I mean, then who am I to talk about <laughs> it? No. If he can talk about it that way. So this is from Rilke. Be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I find that that's so true with just mundane things in life, you know, or not so mundane things about my own children, my relationship, my, my life in general. But just one, one example I wanted to give in regards to the Dharma because people have been talking about how sometimes, you know, new, new ways of looking at the Dharma have, are being presented and can't quite put them together yet. And, but there will be a time when there'll be, there'll be more information and then the whole picture will be known, like you could connect the dots and you'll see the whole picture more clearly. I do remember um, way back when I started in practice, I would not understand this term about anatta or not-self. At my own level, you know, very not-so-deep level, I could understand anicca, which is impermanence, and I could understand dukkha at, at my own not-so-deep level then. Uh, which was about the unsatisfactoriness of every moment in life and blah, blah, blah. But I couldn't understand anatta. And there would be, be these dharma talks on the five aggregates. Many of you know about the, the five aggregates that uh, kind of break apart the, the constituent parts of what is called self. I'm not going to go into the details of that now. But just to say that I would hear that talk so many times, and I, I felt, when I look back, I feel that there was a lot of good fortune that I was, I could meet up with, with the elders of the Dharma, you know, that are dying off now. And I could hear the talks from them, and I couldn't understand that one at all. But Manindra would just say, just hold it, just keep it there, and someday you'll understand it. Someday you'll understand it. So I would just continue to go to whatever, to retreats, anything anybody offered. If I could get there, I would go. And one time, somebody was giving a retreat on my home island of Maui. Didn't really know this person very much, but I thought I could take the time and go. It was just short, maybe four or five days. And it was really a student who was offering the retreat, but it was very nice at the Zen Center, and I thought, good opportunity. And that student gave just the classical talk on the five aggregates, and I just, I went to that retreat with no expectations, a just good time to, to touch in again to the Dharma. And no expectations, mind was open, just patient, just listening, and there were all the previous times that I had heard that talk. But this time, everything just clicked in. And that was one of the greatest turning points of my, my practice, in, just in a, a theoretical way, I mean, not an experiential way. But I had had some experience of understanding all of those different five aggregates, um, not in the most profound way, but deep enough to understand that talk. And it really, it gave me a big boost in my practice to understand it. And it just came from, you know, a student who was offering the retreat that I, I just decided to take it. So why did the Buddha say that it's the highest virtue? 
we discover this quality activates and actualizes a lot of the other virtuous qualities that are in the ten paramis, uh, the ten virtuous qualities that lead us to liberation. For example, it's a great support to equanimity. I talked about equanimity today in the uh, metta session, that spacious, non-reactive, calm balance of mind. So that's the kind of feeling sense, uh, immediate feeling sense of equanimity. Non-reactivity is its main feature, and then there's a sense of spaciousness, a sense of relaxed balance. But it's not always like, you know, there's, it's empty of anything. It, in equanimity, there still could be like uh, comings and goings of defilements, but the mind isn't reacting to them. It sees them with a lot of space around it. It doesn't have that second arrow, that second painful uh, dukkha of we don't like this particular defilement, which gives even more suffering than the first, you know, pain or arrow gave. So we, we see how much when we have patience, it supports equanimity, and of course equanimity supports patience as well. It's the ability to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. That's one definition of equanimity. And the streams, extremes are the near and far enemy of uh, any, any one of those Brahma Viharas, for example. Uh, attachment and aversion, cruelty and pity, or, or uh, unwholesome grief is the uh, near and far enemy of compassion, envy, and exuberance, the near and far enemy of uh, mudita, or sympathetic joy. So it's this willingness to pause. That's what equanimity gives us and helps us to do when we have, when we can practice patience. It's the willingness to pause, to observe the situation in in a way that we bring all of our intelligence and compassion into the moment so that when we can observe what's going on, we observe it with a calm mind as His Holiness the Dalai Lama said in the beginning. We can see everything that's happening there in that moment. And then we're able to really respond intelligently because we've looked at everything intelligently. And we can not only see the present moment, but what would the ramifications of what I say or what I do have for the future? So that willingness to pause uh, and understand, okay, this is the way it is right now. Can I take this all in? And before I just have that knee-jerk reaction, usually comes up as one of those old unwholesome habit patterns. And be able to just relax back after, after that pause. Michelle was talking about that earlier when she had, there was some reactivity that came up, she brought in the equanimity, and the mind just relaxed back again. So in India, the colloquial way of translating equanimity is seeing with patience. And um, we know this when, you know, when we have children or our elders around us and they do naughty things that I, I know I've been around elders who do naughty things too. And um, then we, we have patience with them. It comes naturally. It's a seeing that, exp- that whole what is playing before us with a lot more. Just pausing and, and allowing it to be and um, mining out of that what we need to mine out of that. Some understanding, usually. So it's that constancy, that gentle flowing strength of endurance. Um, you might say that that's equanimity and patience together, that gentle flowing strength of endurance. We're able to see the spiritual process as a journey, as a process, as a journey, rather than a goal. Um, 
When I reflect on the life of Aung San Suu Kyi, many of you know who she is, Nobel Prize winner who just recently received her award. And um, I mean, she got the award 20 years ago, but she was able to personally receive it just a few weeks ago. She, to me, is one of the most beautiful living examples of this gentle flowing strength of endurance because of what she's endured in her life and what she's gone through, being in prison for a total of about 20 years, or over the last 20 years being imprisoned, and most of that time at her home or in, in the prison there in Burma, and being separated from her loved ones died, couldn't be near her husband, um, and separated from her growing children, her boys. But she lived through all of that. She's definitely the gentle flowing strength of endurance uh, to me. I like, actually, I like just turning on the YouTube and watching her, because just watching how she is, even without hearing what she's saying, is a great example for me. She's like this um, gentle flowing river, which has a quality of non-opposition. So, you know, when a river flows through, wherever it flows through, and it reaches some so-called obstacle like a rock, it just goes around it, or over it, and under it, you know, or, or if it goes through some narrow area, it, it flows over or it, it just takes its course, it, it just finds its way without, um, without being forceful, unless the current itself is forceful. It moves around boulders and debris, and she has that kind of strength, and because of that, she's gained the admiration of not only allies, but the people in power around her. She has been practicing metta, she has been practicing vipassana for many years, and uh, a few years ago she was taken from her home, being incarcerated from her ho in her home, to a public prison called, it's called the Insane Prison, it's I-N-S-E-I-N, but you pronounce it insane, which all prisons have that aspect. <laughs> and then she was put on trial. and I. For some ridiculous reason, I, I know the facts, but I'm not, no, no sense going through those details. During that time, there, there was allowed to be some uh, people kind of viewing all of this, uh, some people from the BBC and the British Embassy and, and the American Embassy and other, other uh, not notable people were there. And what came out of that in a news article and a, a news broadcast was a description of when she walked into the room with all of the, you know, the judges and the jury, if there was one, I'm not sure about that, but the military people and the officials were there from Burma. And she walked in with incredible grace, it said in the, in the uh, description of her incredible grace, incredible self-respect, and dignity. And all of the generals stood up and put their hands together as she walked by. And then when she took her seat, then they took their seat. And she just calls that forth because of the way she is. She's endowed with this patience that sees the long road ahead. Recently, right after she got uh, received her award a few weeks ago, I went on YouTube again. That's where I see all this stuff. And uh, there was an interviewer that asked her a lot of poignant questions. And she answered them also very poignantly. And one of the questions was, you know, you've been imprisoned, you've been treated unfairly, and this and that. Don't you want to bring those generals down? Isn't that part of your... And she has these very expressive eyes, and, and 
she's very expressive in her face in general. And she looked at that interviewer so incredulously. And she said, no, no. She said, I want to bring them up. <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. But afterwards, I thought, yeah, that's what she would want. I mean, because she has so much integrity and dignity. And she said, she w I want to raise them up to their potential. That's what she said. I want to raise them up to their potential. So that gentle flowing strength and equanimity, qualities that uh, come forth with uh, patience. And then there's the quality of renunciation can come more easily. You know, the deep level of letting go when we, when we see something happening. Now, Steve talks about his impatience, but I, I want to commend him for he's, he has shown a lot of improvement. In <laughs> <laughs> he's actually, he's, he really shows his patience a lot. And, um, and I know this quality of patience feeds that quality of renunciation, because I can tell that there are times when he's about to say something or do something because of waiting too long or something like that, but he just has that Dharma duct tape on his mouth, and it does not come out. But I can, I'm not sure, but I can tell it's just about to come, and he can let it go. So that quality of, of renunciation, of letting go, and I, I see it in myself too, of course. You know, things happen in our lives, in our family, and I see the judgment coming up or the, you know, that's not fair coming up or something like that. And then I feel like um, whatever, all, you know, all the things. You, everything you have in your mind, I probably have in my mind too. But then I can see in myself that moment to pause and the moment I can let that go. And it really works. It, you can. You, you can really let it go. There's so many times in the day when I can see that maybe I'll go in this direction or maybe I'll say this or that, and that quality of renunciation comes up and says, no, I can let that go. I don't have to do that or say that. It's so powerful. So generosity comes more easily. You know, this letting go is generosity, too. Letting go of expecting things from others, giving more of ourselves. So there's more acceptance, there's more understanding, a way of really having devotion to our inner sense of well-being. It's a, this pa quality of patience is really such deep devotion to a sense of well-being that we have no idea sometimes how powerful it can be in our lives. Impatience has tremendous power over us. Mostly, it's out of habit that it comes. And sometimes I see that just one little example is the habit of um, getting my to-do list completed and every single thing done on the to-do list. And I see that it becomes sometimes more important than connecting with my loved ones. You know, I maybe I'd be on the phone with my daughter and then I'd be thinking, oh, I, I have to do this. And I'd be saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. But with the other hand, I'd be writing something down instead of being fully with her. And realizing that it, that's, that's not fair. You know, can I put that aside and really connect more? So it just has so, that kind of impatience to get things done to finish things that I might need to write down. Just that simple example, we can maybe see where it's so important to let that go, the impatience we have with getting our to-do list completed. I don't write to-do lists a lot, but I have them in my mind. And what's become really important is the top of the page in my mind is 
the title is To Do or Not to Do. And so it gives me permission to cross things out and to say, that doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't need to do that. Oftentimes, you know, it's better not done than done. Because when you do one thing, then five more things have to be done, usually. There was a, an experience with my mother that really awakened my sensitivity to this, uh, about how important it is to be with my, my loved ones. And so this was a while ago. And uh, in raising my four children, um, there was an endless errand list, of course. And my mother was visiting during this time. Actually, um, the children were out. Many of them were out of the house. I can't remember exactly how many. But I'm all still dealing with all of them. So whether they're in the house or not. This was a time my mother was visiting for about a month, and she always loves to cook for us. You know, she, she takes pride in, in cooking the, the foods of our culture and then offering them to us. And uh, so when she's at our home, and she would visit us when Steve and I were living, um, when she was still living, Steve would invite her very graciously and say, have your mother stay with us for a month or two months, and very generous of him. And um, of course, he loved her cooking, you know, and so, and I'm not a good cook, and I can follow a recipe, not a good cook, though. And so she would get everybody out of the kitchen, and the kitchen is hers, and she would just do everything. One of the things she loved to do was for me to take her to the grocery store, and she would push the cart and get everything she needed to make her beautiful dishes for us. And so one time, I was really busy doing my errand list and wanted to complete everything. So I was rushing her to get into the car. And she wasn't quite finished yet. And she was, at that time, already walking quite slowly. And um, she was still strong, but not that stable, you know. And uh, I. I said, we have to go. But I was never mean to my mother, but you know, impatient this time, I have to admit I was. So we have to go now. And uh, so she got all rattled. We checked out, went to the car. And when she was in the car, she started sniffling. And I looked over, and she was crying. She had tears. And I knew what had happened. And until uh, this day, you just breaks my heart to think about it. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she, she says in her Filipino, I'm shedding a tear. But she shed more than one tear. But she was saying she was crying. That was her way of saying, I'm crying. I'm shedding a tear. I didn't have to ask her. I knew what I did. And I said, I'm sorry, Mom. It really changed my relationship to my mom. You know, I, I thought, gee, she's somebody I treasure so much, and uh, I can't, I can't do that. I just can't do that anymore. And I wish I could change it, but it happened, you know. And my mom knows I was really sorry. It was a painful lesson, and so it it just made me see how important it is to be with people and to, to really be fully there, especially our loved ones. So the opportunities we have to practice patience are usually in just those small ways, but they're huge ways. They're, they really are bigger than we think, and they carry on through in our lives when we have those lessons and we have that feeling in our heart, you know, it, it really urges us to just be more patient with ourselves, with others. It empowers us with habit patterns when we, when we look at just those simple things. It makes the habit patterns even in our practice on the cushion, of course, which is a very small part of our life. But it makes it easier to be with ourselves in our practice. 
But just when I was re renewing my talk on patience, I uh, was sent this uh, story. Um, it's a true story by this, uh, he was a taxi driver, Kent Nerburn from Minneapolis. And um, it kind of went viral. Um, has anybody heard the city taxi driver story? Great, I can <laughs> tell you a new story. And it's really, just really about patience and about, um, it's about a lot more than that, but it connects with my, my story with my mom. So he was a taxi uh, cab driver in the city of Minneapolis, and um, he's written a book. You, you can find him online. I'll, I'll put it up on board so you don't have to write me a note, um, his name, and you can Google it. He writes, I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about driving away. But instead, I put the car in park and walked up the door and knocked. Just a minute answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s, it seems, stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 40s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. I peeked in the corner and saw there was a cardboard box filled with glassware and photos. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a sort of hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I reached over quietly and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city she showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up the front of, in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd asked me to go slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. At first, at the first hint of sun that was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home, with the driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in the wheelchair. How much do I owe you? She asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held onto me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said, thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. 
It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or honked once impatiently then driven away? On quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.